Mask up, lock down, and flash your Vax passport. Just kidding. You don't need to do any of that to listen to this week's Year in Review show. We've got a baker's dozen of guests plucked out of the past 50 episodes, and yes, I did have to double-check what a baker's dozen is, who talk about the challenges, surprises, and freedoms of making art this past year. I'm Tara Thorne, and this is The Tideline. I started off the year quoting Vampire Weekend. 2021, what do you think about me? And now I will throw in the back half of that line, which is, I could wait a year, but I couldn't wait three, which I used to believe. And now just seems like a cruel joke. It's been quite a thing to make a show like this in a year like this. And when I was putting it together, I realized that now I could really hear the arc of the past 12 months. So before we get to the clips, I want to send you on a three-minute journey of 2021, the year in COVID podcasting. We're almost a year into this fucking pandemic, but do you remember the time, like July to October 2020, that things went back to normal? There were shows again. We could go to bars and restaurants. Movie theaters were open. All of the reasons I personally live in this town were operational. Currently, they are not and they haven't been. The vaccine, she is upon us. So things will go back someday. And I did cite it, and look what happened. A pandemic. So, happy Quarantine's Day, everybody. Movie theaters have reopened. Markets, concerts, comedy, it's all canceled. And within a couple of days, Dr. Strang was like, just kidding. Here we go with fingers crossed, a couple things. So I was reading on American Twitter before the vaccine came to us, that it really is fucking with people's periods. And I have since seen some friends report on it. And mine is due like this second, so I am just dreading it. And of course it's one of those things that certainly scientists would not think to check about or give a shit about. So I'm just really interested if yours has been weird. Um, uh, I'm hearing lots of things about density. This is a weird capper for a weird time. We just had this life-threatening lockdown, and now here we are throwing the bubble wide open. You know, we might be able to talk about events again, and we might be able to have guests from out of town occasionally who are coming into town. Imagine that. I do want to flag that Cineplex (laughs) reopened a week ago. The offerings aren't great or plentiful at this juncture, but who cares? But real live music festivals, coming back, it's a thing. I've seen some live music, attended a surprise party. It was very loud. Been to a bunch of movies and a few restaurants. And the thing I notice the most is how everything and everyone feels cacophonous. I'm just overwhelmed at least once a day by sound. And now I'm looking at the United States, where over 100,000 people attended Lollapalooza in Chicago last weekend. I don't know if you've seen those photos. They are terrifying and there are no masks in them. There are two music festivals this weekend. Due to COVID protocols, tickets are very, very limited. So some shows could be sold out by the time you hear this. So I cut it out and I glued it to an old birthday card. And whenever I showed it in the US, they commented on the wallet sizedness of it. Don't crease the fucking QR code. Now there's a place I haven't been to in two years. The national treasure, known as Sarah Harmer, announced this week a slate of winter dates for the tour that COVID ruined after five years of waiting for it. You do, of course, need to mask up and bring your proof of vax. That place is generally quite packed. I think you should be prepared to stand in line. I'm just saying. Why am I talking about QR codes in the year of our Lord, 2021? Erin Costello is, of course, a successful artist in her own right. But when she came by the show in the winter, she talked a lot about how the pandemic had added more to her producer's arsenal and how she had to give herself the permission to fuck up to make it work. This is a male-dominated industry still. Yeah. Uh, As you know, there are tons of female artists. 
Uh, why aren't there more more women in production? I think that as women, we are taught early on um, not to be curious, mm-hmm. to kind of stay in our lane a little bit. And I think that there requires um, – in order to be a, a producer or an engineer, there is this uh, element of failure that you need to have. Like, you have to be comfortable with sucking at something. Mm-hmm. And I think as women, it is not set up in our society for us to be like if we want to do something that's outside of what the norm is, we've got to be immediately really good at it or we're dismissed <laughs> as being a stupid inexperienced woman yeah and we feel that pressure right away and so it it keeps us in that lane continually and um i don't know why it is that i've been able to do that maybe i'm i I don't know I, i i don't know what it is about my personality that has allowed me to step outside of that but I can definitely I mean I didn't make my first record till I was 30 Mm -hmm. and so I definitely felt that for a long time I don't know if I would have called it um I wouldn't have named it uh, as like feeling in some way oppressed oppressed by my gender or something but uh something happened when I was 30 years old that I just started to say well fuck it I'm gonna just try this. I'm going to ask lots of questions. Yeah, and, then- and I and I do think age does come into it because, you know, when I joined my first band at 27, I didn't know anything. I was very conscious of the fact that, you know, yeah. I wasn't a skilled musician. I, I They brought me in to play an instrument I didn't play. Yeah. And in a way, it sort of sets you up to be, like, not intentionally, but it sets you up to be always feeling like you're not uh, uh, good enough yeah. or, like, not with everybody. And now that I'm older, I also feel like it's a confidence thing. Like, I know a a ton of men, not great singers. Yeah. They don't give a fuck. No, that's like, right. They're like, there are not a lot of great male singers in this town. It's yeah, just like yeah, a yeah. thing that's true. Yeah. Doesn't stop them from no, making records. But I don't think men carry that same burden of no. having to be good at something in order to do it. Yeah. They just get good at it. Yeah. You know? And I would say the same is true for a lot of the male producers in this town is that they've just dove, dove in and just done it yeah. and learned as they've gone along, yeah. you know, and, and they've expressed that to me. Uh, and that to me is the big difference between uh, men and women is that there is this ability for men to just kind of leap in and fuck up and yeah. and, and be okay with it. And people forgive them mm-hmm. if they fuck up or they don't even notice because there's a confidence in it. Yeah. You know? And even the fact that you're saying I've been spending time taking courses and yeah. like doing mentorships and going into studios. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't know I, any men that have done that. No. They're just like, I would like to make records now. Yeah. And here and they start accruing things. Yep. And, you know, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. they do it. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. But the older I the older I get now, I have no problem directing or being in charge. I think yeah. that's a problem, too. It's like it's hard. It's hard to be in charge. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that. um there's a difference between uh, being a kind of a dictatorial producer or musician and being someone that uh, is kind of shining a light on a path, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I hope to be the latter. Uh, but at the same time, there might be some people that say that. <laughs> Clive might say I'm a dictator in moments, which is probably true for him. In February, Mo Kenny released an album of covers called Covers that featured spare, haunting versions of songs by Big Star, Guided by Voices, and The Kinks, among others. In a revealing chat, she talked about how the pandemic made her confront her alcohol abuse in a real way for the first time. Yeah, when the pandemic started, I drink. I used to drink a lot anyway, like a lot. And I was ordering like basically a bar to my apartment mm-hmm. like every week. So a big box of booze would show up. Like was, harvest wines. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> I where I was, I was yeah. Yeah, ordering from. And uh, I was drinking all the time. And I've no, I've had a drinking problem for, for like a long time. And I, I tried to get sober in 2015. And I think that lasted maybe five months and I was back on it. And I've known that I have to do it. But I was just kind of like putting it off and didn't didn't feel like I could. And mm-hmm. for some reason, the pandemic was, you know, it stuck. I don't know why. Interesting. Because mm-hmm. I went the other way. Yeah, I think I most like, people yeah, do. Yeah, it's like, what else was there to do? Yeah, there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, yeah, but I, but you kind of, at one point you go, why do I feel like shit every day? It's because you had yeah. four beers for no reason yesterday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it why. really fucks with your mind too. Like you don't really have to drink very much for it to make you feel depressed and mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. So that's a big thing that I've noticed. Like a couple months after I quit, I was like, wow, I actually feel like a sane, stable person right, right now. <laughs> right. 
Um, and is this something that you like? Do you feel like would you use the word alcoholic? Is that something that you I feel would, like you are? Yeah, I would use that word. Wow, for sure. Well, yeah. Je- when Jenna Berry was on the show, she talked a lot about how she did her first tour by herself and she drank a ton, and and she's sober now as well. I did hear that. Yeah, yeah I listened to that. And how the industry is not set up to support people. No, it really isn't, and. It's nice having this break from touring for that reason. I feel like I can get a solid, steady footing on the sobriety thing and mm-hmm. then re-enter that world. But I'm not sure if I would have been able to do it if I was still touring all the time, especially because I tour alone right. mostly. So, you know, it's like, yeah. again, so what else am I going to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and how has it helped um, your songwriting? Um... I'm not really sure yet. I I was listening to a podcast. I listened to a lot of like recovery podcasts mm-hmm. and stuff. And somebody called uh, the first like the beginnings of sobriety. Like you feel like a what, what did she say? Uh, a skinless baby, <laughs> <laughs> which is like a really gross image. But yeah. I get it. Like I kind of I feel very like um, like fragile and like raw. And I I alcohol has been such a big part of my life for so long that I'm getting to know myself mm. for the first time, it feels like. I don't know who the fuck I am. Right. Like, it's it was such a big part of my life. And, um, yeah, I'm sort of, I'm not, I'm trying not to be hard on myself about the writing thing. I've written some stuff, but uh, I'm not really sure how it's going to affect my writing yet. I'll probably write sad songs till I die, but. Yeah, it's just in us. Know? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you hear that a lot about is, like, you know, when you think of, like people in the 70s like the in 60s and 70s like these eras of excess it's like they felt like um their artistry came from drugs and alcohol yeah that's and that was um something i used to believe mm-hmm. as well big time i read this really good book um her name is leslie jameson it's called the recovering mm-hmm. when i was first getting sober and uh, she's a writer, and she talked about um, – she sort of talks about both sides, like writers throughout history who have gotten sober and either stopped writing completely because they felt they couldn't or people who have done their best work once they've got sober, right. which I thought was interesting. Um, but I don't believe that I – I don't believe anymore that I need to be depressed and and uh, an alcoholic to – to write good music. Right. I think I think that it'll be better. It was a tough year to be in the theater biz. Well – all the bizzes, but unlike the music and film industries, the logistics of theater made it one of the most restricted and least operational art forms in 2021. There have been a remarkable number of productions this year considering, and Summer Theater made a valiant half comeback, but still nowhere near full capacity. Yet a pair of bright lights emerged in separate seasons on either side of the bridge, first in March Phyllis Rising staged its live stream sitcom hybrid The Crevice from the bus stop. It featured a pair of mother-daughter duos in various states of Lost. And it was a play, and it was also streamed live on Vimeo. And it was one of the most ambitious, weirdest things I've ever seen. And fun fact I can now reveal, I'm one of the tiny handful of people who got to sit in on one of the live shows. Two of its creators, writer-actor Rebecca Falvey and director Meg Hubley, popped by to chat collaboration, and you'll hear them first. And they're followed by the autumnal sensation Fat Juliet, a subversive contemporary retelling of Romeo and Juliet that sold out its entire run at Eastern Front Theater for the back half of October. In case you missed it, playwright and star Stevie Hunter and director Kat McCormick will explain its deal. Is it hard for you to be um, uh, in the room as the writer and an actor and then seeing what other actors do? Like, especially now that you're directing so much. Like, is there ever a time that you want to be like, that's not right? Or are you directing, are you technically the director of this? No, Megan's No, Megan, that's what I thought, mm-hmm. yeah. So is it is it hard for you to kind of, uh, it doesn't even need to be hard. Is it is it a challenge? Well, I don't know yet. I, I guess, I yeah. I don't remember it being that way in such when a... we did the fringe Meg, Meg directed the fringe version and mm-hmm. I, I feel like we're we're pretty good at working together in that yeah it, it's always really collaborative when we work together too and like um Amy Keeler who's playing Kate um our friend and like she's been really kind of involved in the development of the script as well and it's sort of like 
the best joke is gonna win. Mm -hmm. um, Keelan too. Keelan was really helpful mm -hmm. in developing that character. Yeah, and yeah, it's it is a a very open kind of room, and you're not precious about lines, certain lines. Like Amy's, like I'm probably gonna say like sure do instead of whatever's on the page oh yeah it's not about the words i want e like the the actors are all so good i want them to oh each God. make the characters their their own mm -hmm. is that a theater tradition that's dying like that the, the, the playwright <laughs> is god such a weird thing like it's, mm -hmm. the it's the only place where anyone cares what the, ra what yeah. the writer did <laughs> yeah it's it's true yeah and i feel like i i don't like working like that either i like and we work with people that we really like and admire. And um, we're, we're working with people, Samantha Wilson, who ran the theater school while we were attending it. Oh, nice. Um, Mary Colin Chisholm, mm -hmm. who is legend. Like a legend. Yeah. It's like, well, I defer, not, not de defer, but in, <laughs> you know, too bad of a way, but like, I want what everybody's bringing. Right. And yeah. I'm generally... Mu oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I'm generally much much more moved uh, by movies where the actors have a big say in the characters and the, mm -hmm. the storyline. So I wanted to, to go in that direction. Even though it's a comedy, I still want it to be very character-driven and mm -hmm. to have a lot of heart. So, yeah, it yeah. has to... I really want the characters to develop that way. What is the story? Of Fat Juliet or yes. Romeo and Juliet? No. <laughs> if anyone wants to know the story of Romeo and Juliet, go they can to NoFearShakespeare.com. Uh, no, the story of the show. <clears throat> the story of the show. Um, so, yeah, well, it's all from Juliet's perspective. And so, um, in the original RNJ, you really just get a lot of her. She's always in her room for the most part, unless it's like, I'm going out to get married to this man <laughs> or I'm going out to die. <laughs> like, those are really the or only times. Or being married off to this other man. <laughs> or, yeah, this other guy or I'm at a party in my house. Um, so it's, this version shows all of the kind of in-between as well. And so because it's like, all right, so in our version, she's fat. And so when I was 16 and fat, where I just had extreme body dysmorphia, but didn't necessarily think I did and blah, blah, blah. It's a lot of her being in her room, looking at herself in the mirror and wondering if anyone will actually love her because she's being told by the world that she's unlovable. So mm -hmm. how does she overcome that is pretty much our version of the story. Yeah. And what happens when you're given that kind of affection and attention and you don't know what to do with it yet I think that's like super universal this idea that someone suddenly loves you you know Romeo in this version and the original is like just so over the top with his declarations he comes of in love hot. Like, he, comes in he's so he starts oh, off yeah. by being heartbroken about also, some other girl a rebound yes, yes. like he, like Juliet's a rebound and I think there is like true love there and there is proof that like in Romeo's dialogue that he does start changing a bit but also it's like okay would these two really actually make it <laughs> and yeah. also if they um, lived would they still be together yeah well and also from I like wanted to explore the relation like relationship between a younger girl mm -hmm. and an older teen boy and what does that actually look like mm -hmm. and also it's like the you know, one of his enemy's cousins and like, how does that actually unfold in this mishmash of a contemporary classical kind of love story of all time? Is it actually, mm -hmm. you know, the love story we think it is? Yeah. Of course it isn't. Uh, <laughs> Probably yeah, not. But the alert. plot, I will say, <laughs> does largely follow the same plot as the original R&J. But once again, we're seeing it all through Juliet's perspective. And what is the language? Uh, it's a mixture of both. So we've we've uh, kind of got into a habit of almost we were describing it in grants and such as like almost like a musical where things get emotional or heated that that's when like the classical dialogue almost comes in. Heightened moments heightened receive moments. heightened text. Yeah. Aww. So a lot of the like love, you know, falling in love moments is just this like being overcome by flowery language to express oneself, but then also having contemporary just really like kind of gut-wrenching mm -hmm. truths yeah um, i'd say it's largely 
It's mostly contemporary text with, yeah. you know, the moments of, oh, my God, and now we're in it. Just a fact about Scrooge McDuck. I don't know why I have this fact, but... <laughs> Just thinking about money and all the money, I was like, we, I was, we were researching wealth for this, sh- for this new show. And Scrooge McDuck, I was researching the, the net worth of like fictional people. Mm-hmm. And Scrooge McDuck is like, wow, through the roof, loaded. Huh. That bin of all those cool coins. He's now, like a multi, multi, multi trillionaire. So Scrooge McDuck, was it that the that Christmas Carol happened, where he was Ebenezer Scrooge, and then. Somehow there was the whole spinoff of the Ducktail. Is was it called Ducktails? Duck yeah. Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Yeah. That that happened afterwards, but he was still called hmm. Scrooge. So it was like, hmm. oh, like, yeah, you're got. You're do right. You know it's I mean? an early, early reboot. Because I feel like that Scrooge Ducktails is a contemporary tale. Yeah, but <laughs> Scrooge, very, very but, you know, what Scrooge I like is, Molière. A, is a classic <laughs> Dickensian villain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like but, literally, but plucked out of time and mm. dropped into you know, mm. I don't know. Is it is it like Donald Duck world? Is it sort of 50s, it is Donald Duck world, sixties right? or was it eighties? I think it was eighties. Mm. <sighs> All I know is they were surfing around and bought gigantic mountains of money. Yeah. That was Stuart Legere and Ben Stone, who, along with Alex McLean, were in studio to discuss Zupa Theater's 23rd anniversary, among many other things, including that. I don't remember how we ended up there, but we did. Christiane Conlin wrote a terrific book called The Speed of Mercy, set in the dirt and rocks and secrets across dual timelines in the Annapolis Valley, in which women who are normally cast aside get to tell their stories for once. In our conversation, we touched on one of my favorite things to touch on, the 1991 film, Thelma and Louise. I, I think thinking about it in that way, I mean, I didn't write it so it would be a movie, but thinking about it, I mean, it's the kind of movie I would love to see. Mm-hmm. And I love road, it's a road trip book, right? Yeah. It's just unlikely people on a road trip. And one of my favorite scenes is Stella and Diane pedaling old bicycles up the North Mountain, right? (laughs) Like these two women on the run from an institution yeah, and uh, on the run for their lives. And I loved the movie Thelma and Louise. Listen, you have just said the magic words. That's my favorite film of all time. All time. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I remember when that film came out, this was, you know, like the whole chick flick, chick lit. And I remember even then thinking... How can anybody who's had that experience of being controlled and dominated and running out of opportunities not relate to this? Yeah. And that, again, I feel is this effort to really um, box up and put in a corner the female like experience as portal to the human experience. Right. And I mean, like, look at On the Road. Yeah. Oh, my right? God, I know. Like, and that is this this amazing book. And then Thelma and Louise is still not as much, but it's still often oh, a, a movie for for women. Well, geez. Right. Like what what is on the road? That's the universal experience. Right. And, you know, Thelma and Louise is, uh, you know, I, that's sort of my coming of age movie. I was in grade seven when it came out and um, it changed everything for me because I didn't know that um, that you could kill your leads. You know what I mean? It's sort mm-hmm. of like I was like, what? I remember being in my friend's house because we had to wait for it to come out on video. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in the country, no, no, no movie theaters and being like, wait, they die and there was such <laughs> an uproar about that movie like even i remember that i have i i bought on ebay a cover like the time cover it's like the problem mm-hmm. with them and louise or why or why them and louise, t- louise touches a nerve and i think about if that movie had come out in a in a social media time exactly what would have happened but gina davis has this great quote that she's been saying for you know 30 years three people die and two of them are thelma and louise like what is the problem here mm-hmm. it's just like the way it was the way it was perceived, um, yeah, it was so outlandish for women mm-hmm. to to sort of take control, and it really inspired the story that I'm that I'm making, and uh, you know, um, and we're talking on Oscar nomination day, and, and promising young woman has just gotten gotten five nominations, and that film I, I feel like has Thelma and Louise DNA in it too, where it's just sort of like, well, well, no, we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna take some agency back, and it also has a very tragic ending. Um, so again, is is. It's also why my movie doesn't have a tragic ending. I'm, like, I'm sort right. of like I'm, I'm rewriting, mm-hmm. rewriting the, what feels obvious. So yes, yeah. Well, in my book, I mean, there, there it has are a happy people ending. Who die, yes, right? but there is a happy ending. I was so yeah, <laughs> yeah. But some, 
Some people are sacrificed, yep. right? Because that's just what happens. And so in a book, when you have drama, right, in, in a novel or a film, and there's got to be dramatic, you know, tension and conflict and something that happens. But I mean, often in life, there people are sacrificed in more mundane ways, right? Women. And I, I have so much compassion now for a lot of women, my friends' moms in the Valley, who mm. I never understood. And I realize how much they gave up and how much <clears throat> they actually didn't have access to in simple ways, like jobs. Yeah. You know, and when you got pregnant, you were, you couldn't work anymore. I mean, and that went right through the 70s. And so it's it's very interesting how quickly we forget and how easy it was for me to also judge. And I'm from a family where the women always work, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the working poor back when nursing wasn't something you did at university and you went and you learned in a hospital and the head doctor and head nurse ran your life, even your social life. And so um and there's there's still nurses out there who come from that time. Yeah. And so you had to work, right? Or or servants or farmers or all these different things. So my mom's dream was to be a stay-at-home mother. And I used to think that was embarrassing and horrible. And how could you want to be a stay-at-home mother? And then when I was a single parent working, I understood, right? right? Like you can only do so much. And I think lots of people are sacrificed in slow, quiet, horrible sort of... It, extinguishments of their spirit and people die they're 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 murdered by their partners Mm -hmm. or they die of alcoholism or they end up with all kinds of health problems that would if they had had more time right so lots of people die and I felt Thelma and Louise was very emblematic of the fact that that's what they would choose rather than go back and go through the system and and be put in jail. Yeah, yeah, they knew the system would fail them. Yeah. And there's some very powerful male characters in that who are allies and, yeah. and do understand. Good old Harvey Keitel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to, he tried to stop them from yeah. driving off. Yeah, but he kind of knew it <laughs> yeah. was futile, right? Yeah. Like the system would just destroy them anyway. So at least they chose their end. But I, I, so I think that was a real watershed film. And I feel like in The Speed of Mercy, there are people who die. And then there are those who don't, right, Mm -hmm. and have a sense of agency. And they discover that in very unlikely, unusual, unusual ways. So, you know, we're astrology stands here on the Tideline, and we kicked off the spring by inviting the world-renowned astrologer Deborah Young onto the show, jumping a two-year wait list, by the way. A lot of people have asked, so I will say, yes, she did give me a reading off air. And to paraphrase Channing Tatum, how do you know what you know about me, Deborah? And I mean, you must talk to people and you must say things that um, upset them, like not intentionally, but I, I, I wonder sort of how, like, do you, when you're dealing with people, can you see that um, you're going to, you're going to tell them something that you know is upsetting them, but you have to, you have to do it anyway? Like how, how is your actual experience, um, you know, sort of dealing with people's emotions in the moment? Because I have to imagine they're very widely variant. Well, thankfully I'm a detached Aquarius. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But moon cancer gives me lots and lots of empathy. Um, You know, I try to, we work with it, you know, and I don't try to script anything, obviously. It's, um, you know, if a lover's not going to work out and this is something that they're very deeply attached to, you know, we go over all the reasons behind that. You know, for example, if I'm attracted to a particular lover and this person isn't right for me for whatever reason, then, you know, I'm looking at the person's chart. Everything comes from the natal chart, which is kind of this grand temple you know, that we're born at a certain month, day, year, time, location, and that is part of our evolutionary path. So if I have a distorted heart energy and I'm with a lover that reflects that distortion, mm-hmm. then, you know, this person is teaching me a lot a lot of lessons, but these are the reasons why it would be a good fit moving forward, if that makes any sense. It does. So you have yeah. to tell people some hard truths sometimes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and like, let's be honest, we generally know when we're in the wrong thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, you know, give health warnings as well. And I know a lot of medical people, traditional and allopathic, naturopathic and so forth. It's, um, you know, so it's, you know, I have a roster of people I can refer people to, people I feel would be a good fit. You know, sometimes they live someplace I don't have any any resources but um, or any contacts, but we work with it. 
right? Yeah. And so for something like the pandemic, people go, well, didn't you see this coming? Actually, I did. You did. Tell me. There's, Tell me about there's it. There's a clip somebody sent me of me talking about it in 2003. No. Yeah. What, what did you say then? I said, uh, the wait is over. We're going to get a pandemic. And there was this energy, and I didn't want to dive too deep into it. A very rare connection, which often that's hyped on social media, these rare connections, right? Um, but this was a re- super, this was a rare connection and hadn't been around in four or 500 years. And there's a particular planet that does rule pandemics. Um, it's the planet Pluto. And there was this rare connection between Saturn and Pluto and the sign of Capricorn, the roof of the global chart. Um, that exacted January 12, 2020. So I knew this lead up through 2019, the fall, especially of 2019. I was looking at different markers that January 12th, there was no going back. There was no putting anything back in the bottle. We were in it. And wow. I was on global television just prior to that. And um, Paul Brothers, who I adore, he's a great interviewer. Yes. He, um, just before the show, he said, you know, I really respect your, you know, your, your craft. And I said, well, it's my path. And he said, but I want this to be something kind of light. And I looked at him, I said, this is a really serious year. <laughs> this is really serious. So I call it, and not just me, but a mass karmic event. In other words, that this exact energy that um, January 12th, it was going to affect the whole world. And it was going to shift and alter political social systems. Um, we've been in that zone or that cycle since 2008. We're there to 2024, that kind of the whole dismantling of certain systems, yeah. you know, government, social, business, corporate, um, that dismantling is going to be there for another three years. But, you know, humans are lazy. Something's kind of working. You know, we keep getting that donut every morning or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so this shift was going to be something outside of ourselves, outside of our control, so to speak. So, Yeah. So my obviously my follow-up question is when do we shift out of it? You just said we're going to be dismantling systems, but can you do you see the end of the pandemic? You know I have to ask. Of course you do. Of course you do. <laughs> um, this year is interesting because we have two energies: one that we're boundary planet Saturn from each other in you know it, Aquarius is is a collective, so we're boundary there. Um, we're kind of restricted. It depends on your relationship to Saturn, which I'd like to say something about. And then the planet Jupiter, where we will have more freedoms. So, you know, we're going to have more freedoms, and but the restrictions in terms of mask wearing mm-hmm. and that type of thing, that's going to go on at least to 2023, for sure, for wow. another two years. Yeah. There you go, everyone. <laughs> Keep buying masks. Get nice masks. Get, get nice masks. <laughs> Actually, I wore a red one today because all the planets are in Aries. It relates to the color red. So wow. I'm trying to coordinate my mask with wherever the moon is. I wish I knew. Mine's teal. Sorry. When your favorite Haligonian turns 99, you pack up the mobile unit and you take a field trip. Palmer and I ventured to the Museum of Natural History to hang out with Gus the Gopher Tortoise for an afternoon ahead of his virtual birthday party. There's a total banger in the works for his 100th in 2022, by the way. Here's the museum's Jeff Gray explaining Gus's appeal. I know you get asked this every year because as he's getting closer to 100 next year, Mm. uh, people probably ask you this every year in your round of media (laughs) interviews. Um, What do you think it is that, what is it about him? Why are people, like, I'm obsessed. I couldn't, I kind of don't know why, but I am. Like, why do people love him so much? I, I, I think he is the perfect mix of all the things that you want to love. I think that he is because he is he he has the persona whether this is ourselves have reflected it on him or it just is how he seems but he has a curmudgeonly old mm-hmm. man feeling that you just love that little person uh, and I think that that's one part of it. I think a big a bigger portion of it I feel and it it seems like what I'm about to say is made up. And I've said it a bunch of times, so it's not starting to feel like it's made up. But <laughs> the reality is there are, and I've seen it, and I know that others who work here have seen it too. There are grandparents who come here with their grandchildren and stand in front of Gus. And I've heard them say it over and over. I used to come and see Gus when I was your age. And so when you have had something, anything, that is has that generational connection, mm-hmm. I think that that's a big part of it. Uh, not many of us know anybody you know who is 99 and so to know that you know when people start really wrapping their mind around the time you know that time binds multiple generations now and so i think that people then have that kind of of an emotional connection to gus as a person 
And I think that that's the thing about it too. And I think it's hard for us as a museum to have those kinds of conversations too, because he's become a part of the museum in a, in a personified person way and not, you know, it's not, he's not even like a pet or like a mascot or like uh, anything else. He is just, it's just Gus. It's part of the experience when you come to the museum. And I think that's how it works. I think another part of it, and it's not quite true now, but it has been for years. He is the first thing that you see when you come into the museum. Mm -hmm. He's the last thing that you see when you leave the museum. And that's sort of bookending your experience. If it's as small as a little smile or a full on taking part in a walk, the vast majority of, you know, we are at now millions of visitors who have been here in the time that he's been here have had some kind of authentic experience with him. Mm -hmm. And I think that that adds to it too. So I think all those things together build out this time where you're now not able to separate your museum experience from a Gus interaction. And so I think that, that that's what it's become. And I think that, you know, it's, it's lovely. It's an amazing thing to have as, you know, as the, the guy who markets the museum, it's wonderful <laughs> to have something like that, you know, for the public, but it's just, it's, it's wonderful to be able to see people's, you know, real emotional attachment to a part of what you do at the museum. The Halifax Fringe Festival managed to squeak in a robust local festival across multiple venues in September. One of the hottest tickets was My First Heart Attack, the third in a series of incredibly personal, hilarious, and poignant one-person shows Jane Kansas has written and starred in at the Fringe in the past decade. This is sort of a, a bizarre question to ask any artist, I think, but I'm I'm, I'm asking you because you're because you're not a, a practicing playwright, practicing performer. Absolutely. What do you get out of doing these shows? It is uh, there is something when I've been on stage, and the, my I first started going on the stage like I guess a couple of decades ago for the asshole monologues. Yeah. And uh, when you're on stage and you are in the middle of something and you're not afraid of forgetting. You're not afraid of uh, making a mistake. You can, and all these people are paying attention to you. You, it's a bit transcendent uh, to, uh, and when you look at them and their eyes are on you, like they're listening, they're like, they're with with attention and then they're laughing and then so they're laughing and you are you miss smarty pants are like pause beat beat for the laughter to die down a bit before you start in mm -hmm. again and you have that rhythm uh which i do i you can do. pause beat beat when i have to or when i should without thinking about it and that's really fun uh to do that so i um the and also the challenge of it. That's another great reason for me to do it this year and not back out and is to go up there and challenge myself because um normally in our lives, well, I don't it I can't speak for everyone. I don't really challenge myself that much. I like to get up, have get a, a big bunk of coffee, spend a couple of hours on the internet, <laughs> get some more coffee, get some more hours on the internet. Like I am I just want to coast. I'm mm. I'm not making the most of it for sure. <laughs> and uh so this is a huge challenge. This play now will be a huge challenge. With my funeral, by the way, I had Hugo Dan as dramaturge. I had Tara Thorne and Jackie Torrance and Hugo again and Jane Wright yep. uh, doing videos yep. for me. I had Kenny Lewis and and his great dog Tiny as my text. I had Aaron Hartling on bar. Yeah, I had other volunteers every night there uh on the door, on the whatever, on the whatever. Like there was Alexa it, bouncers. It Alexa it took a village. <laughs> yeah, full on production. I'm going into this with uh Hugo Dan offering me some advice. Robin Badger is going to video it off her phone. But then I've got this projector thing and I have no idea how I'm gonna mm. like make that happen and can I run it myself with a remote? I have uh, 
a couple of things that require technical help. And I don't know if the tech, the fringe tech at the one rehearsal I have is going to, is that enough? Like, I don't have a stage manager. I don't have nothing. And so I'm, I feel like I'm walking the plank. Like, I feel I'm walking the thin edge of the wedge here. And uh, really, I have to, myself as the performer is going to be the part that I have to totally concentrate on. And if something technical doesn't work, fuck it. Yeah. Like, because I'm, no matter what, I'm going to be on stage. One of the biggest local success stories of the year was Breton Hannum's Wildhood, which had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival and opened this year's Atlantic Film Festival, a road movie and coming-of-age story about a queer teen uncovering his Indigenous roots. Wildhood has already had a terrific festival run and will be released theatrically next year. Brett stopped by on their way to TIFF to talk about what it means to represent multiple communities as an artist. Indigenous queer filmmaker, is that something that you're like, yay, I get to take up this mantle? Or is it is it sometimes like too much where you just want to be like, I just make movies? Where do you fall on that? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I don't see it as a mantle, and I don't see it as something that's frustrating. It's more of a feeling of this is a responsibility that I have to my communities, uh, to my community, to my communities, um, to ensure that the things are balanced and proper and presented well, um, to make something that's good that brings back good things. It's a lot of film can be taking, mm. like they, the stories just can tend to take. They take, they take, they take. So my goal is always to um, to give or return something um, to communities. Like that's really my goal with anything that uh, indigenous material or um, cultural material or queer material. Um, I wouldn't say I speak for everyone or represent everyone. Uh, because I can't. It's impossible. Our communities are not monolithic. Mm-hmm. Uh, any community is not monolithic. And uh, I, because I'm part of different communities, um, you know, people don't always agree with what I'm saying or doing. Sure. Just because no one agrees with everyone 100% of the time. Um, but I always kind of keep it in my heart when I'm making work to to be as open and transparent and honest and collaborative as possible. There are constraints in place just because of the mechanisms of industry and economy that kind of present prevent that sometimes, which is um, frustrating. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm still working out how all that works. But, I, but constraints of industry, is that changing? I mean, that's certainly what they want us to believe. Um. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Things are changing. Yeah. Um, uh, these are questions that I have with other people and that I just like lie awake at night and think about myself. And I wonder how much things are changing or if they will ever change enough. Mm-hmm. Um, if you picture a world in which things are more balanced, it's still, is that enough? Um, and one of the things that I, one of the things that I look at is the actual framework of how a film is created itself. Extremely segregated, fractured, hierarchical mechanism, systematized stuff. It's not a circle where people sit and listen to each other and then collaborate and do things like which is what I'm more used to. So this film was kind of striking a balance in between that and sometimes the tips and teeters <laughs> over on one side and over the other, and then people are like, "You have to." finish this, like we're on, like the schedule is falling behind. I'm like, no, this needs time. Like this needs space. We need more space and more time. And um, the people I was working with were very good about that, right? They're they're very collaborative and open to that. That's not always the case Mm -hmm. uh, or been the case. Um, And that's one thing. And then the other way, or the other side of, of that equation, I suppose, is the stories, the storytelling itself. And the way that we tell stories as filmmakers, and maybe this hedges into like forbidden experimental narrative territories, but if you look at how we consume the stories, the types of stories that we consume, we speak about them in a very 
I would say boring mm-hmm. um, and predictable language. One first act, second act, third act, turning point, inciting incident, climax, denouement, blah blah mm. blah blah blah. Those are in those are tools, and they're great tools. Um, they're a specific way of telling a story, and I wonder and worry that that type of storytelling has overtaken and oversaturated, and like a lot of things, spreads across the world, and it wipes out different ways of storytelling and different um, methods and approaches. Like if you watch like um, obscure Thai cinema, sure, um, that can be hard to get a hold of, especially in the 90s, stuff from the 90s or the 80s that, that, you know, it's ragtag a little bit rough around the edges a lot of the times. Um, And there's a ton of things. It's very rich. Um, And this is what I find with a lot of... um, places that are developing their their cinematic language the early stuff seems to be quite even though finding its way interesting engaging mm-hmm. and then over time it slowly becomes one act two act three act you know we have to have this happen at a certain time to engage people's interest people don't have a large attention span and i wonder then if it's not a problematic system that perpetuates itself mm-hmm. by saying, well, you have this great script, Tara, but we need you to change things so the inciting incident is, happens here or that this is clear or that people know what's happening before it happens. Like that's a big pet peeve of mine. Sometimes a thing can happen and you can learn about it way later at the mm-hmm. end of the movie or maybe mm-hmm. you don't learn about it at all. Mm-hmm. And that's the absolute most sacrilegious thing I've ever said. At the end of September, my Old boss and current life coach Stephanie Domet dropped in to chat the third iteration of Afterwards, the literary festival she co-founded. But everything I know about journalism, I learned from her. And even though neither one of us is a hard J journalist anymore, it never really leaves you. So I asked her what she thinks about the state of things. Now, here's a slice of what she said. Well, thank you for that very broad question. <laughs> Everyone loves a broad question. Who doesn't? That, this thing should just be called broad questions. <laughs> With right? a broad. With a broad, exactly. <laughs> thing writes itself. Uh, yeah, my feelings are many and various. Certainly, it is. Uh, certainly, there has been some decay and degradation. <laughs> decay. I would say. Yeah. In the way... Journalists are asked to do their work and able to do their work. And that's a real shame. And we all suffer um, for that societally, I think, culturally. Uh, On the other hand, there is a vital role for newsletters, I think, actually. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily ones that come from big media companies, but the opening up of space Let me tell you a little story. So (laughs) one time I was on a flight. I was going to Salt Lake City for a work thing. And uh, I sat beside this guy uh, who was an older white guy um, who lived in Salt Lake City, was Mormon, had a, you know. Classic Salt Lake City. Classic Salt Lake City. (laughs) And he was very curious about, like, how my husband was going to get along without me at home and that I must have made a bunch of meals for him before I left. And, you know, we we had that conversation. And somehow we were talking about, you know, the internet, the old World Wide Web, and the the space that it opens up for a lot of people to say what's on their mind, mm-hmm. tell their stories. And I was talking about how exciting I think that is to hear from these voices who were never able to get a seat at the big white table before. And his take on it was that he was concerned there were, there were a few too many voices, mm-hmm. you know. And that they were going to corrupt our children. And we left our conversation at this. I said, I think kids are cooler than that, actually. You know, I don't think you have to worry about the kids being corrupted by Mm -hmm. a variety of voices. But I often think about that conversation because it really is, yes, mighty journalism is definitely falling. That is a terrible thing. And something else is coming in. Mm. And so I, I'm sort of caught in between feeling like, wow, you used to be able to, to kind of do something as a journalist that contributed to society, to your community, you know. I, I think that's harder to do now in a big media outlet because 
Because the structures that were always there are just more visible now. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's happening. I mean, there's long been an advertising department at the CBC, yeah. you know, and marketing. And, and all of those things play a role, I guess, a necessary one. I mean, they definitely pay your check, so there's that. And then even mm-hmm. that is like, I don't want to think about who pays my check. Mm-hmm. I just want to serve the people I'm here mm-hmm. to serve, which is my audience, right? So I think what's happening right now is just the structures that have always been there are just more obvious because, please God, let this be late-stage capitalism, right? Yeah. It's like it's all being revealed. It's pretty gross. Oh, it turns out we didn't want to see how the sausage got made. It's disgusting. Yeah. Put that back behind closed doors. But at the same time, what's happening is that there is this space that's opening up, that's been opening up for other voices that haven't been able to, you know, to get behind a microphone, to have a byline, to exist inside that power structure that's easier for some people to exist in because of how they look, who they are, where they come from. And so that space is there. And so there is, yes, this, this like, constant wearing away of an industry. Mm-hmm. But, but it's also an opening of space for these other voices. And I feel really excited about that. Screen Nova Scotia held a truncated version of its annual award show that was live-streamed from the Marquee in November. Four actors were awarded Actra Maritimes Awards for Outstanding Performances. Ursula Calder and Taylor Olson from the film Bone Cage, Alistair McDonald from the short Liar, and Vanessa Antoine, star of Digstown. Vanessa and I chatted ahead of the show's third season premiere, and she spoke to the challenges of making work about COVID while still living with COVID. The show just addressed COVID head on. What did you think about that in terms of, you know, episode-wise? I mean, we... We this Digstown has, is not shy about uh, tackling subjects that are difficult to discuss um, head mm-hmm. on. You know, um, for me it was it was quite emotional because you know we were already on such a high level of anxiety because of you know the cases going up. We were already dealing with a subject matter within the script that we were shooting in the storyline about a death that happened um, as a result of COVID. And we were tackling, you know, the, the emotions that go along with that. So it, it, um, it was a lot of wine drinking by myself trying to <laughs> figure out how I'm going to navigate through these emotions <laughs> because um, a lot of tears were shed. And, um, but I, I hope that we, we managed to tell the story as truthfully as possible. Well, and and COVID specifically, it's changed so much, um, just the way we react to it and the way that we've dealt with it. It's sort of like, it's not even like you've had time to even sit with the experience because we're still in it. Well, that's it. You know, I mean, I I was just, I think (laughs) the other day I went for a little side note story here, story time. I went to a massage because I've had, you know, an insane amount of stress and anxiety and haven't been able to sleep and just sort of thinking about the whole, the last year now, almost two years now of what has gone on. And, um, I sat quietly in the massage, uh, place and, um, beautiful therapist just was quietly just checking off boxes about my health and do I have high blood pressure and, you know, family things. And I, and he said, so what's going on with you? Literally broke out into tears. Like just, just, just started just crying. And, I was like, oh my gosh, so embarrassed. Of course, I've got my mask on. So I'm trying to like hide the tears, but they just keep coming. And he was like, you know, don't worry about it. You're in a safe space. This happens all the time. And I was like, I I guess I'm just now coming to the realization of all of the things that have been going on for the last two years. And at that time, we were just um, finding out about all of the the babies and the children that were all the indigenous babies that were found mm. and that coupled with you know everything happening you know health wise and then all of the things that were happening politically um and it it was just it's been a long hard year to just kind of take everything in and you know just to go back to your question yeah we haven't had a moment to really sit with it um and digest it On November 30th, Steve Murphy anchored his last broadcast from the CTV Atlantic Anchor Desk. 
just a casual 45 years. He, of course, signed off with his usual be well. And when he came by a few days before his final show, we talked about where it came from. Your sign off is from my colleagues on both sides of our cameras. Right. When did you implement that? And how Mm. did it develop? Okay, well, the the sign off, uh, the both sides of the cameras part, I don't, don't remember when I started to say that, but it did occur to me early in my days in TV that there are way more people you don't see than do. Mm-hmm. It's also true in radio, by the way. It's true in this, even in this, uh, this little podcast. In this podcast, yeah. I mean, we talk know. about Palmer a lot. Okay. Well, he, there's no <laughs> podcast without Palmer. That's right. And we don't sound good without Palmer. That's but, very true. But the truth is, in television particularly, there are a lot of people on the other side of the camera. There's an exponential relationship between, <clears throat> pardon me, the technical and production teams and the on-air people. So it, it does it does seem appropriate to me to acknowledge the people that you don't see. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, but I don't remember exactly when that was. It's probably 25 years anyway. Wow. The, the other part of my sign-off that people ask me about is be well. Mm. And I will tell you that I, when I used to travel to the Bahamas, WABC television was carried on local cable, which at that time, by the way, was owned by Jeff Sterling in Newfoundland. Wow. And Bill Butel was the anchor of Eyewitness News on Channel 7, WABC New York. He ended his newscast every night by saying, good luck and be well. And I always thought that I liked the be well part of it more than the good luck part of it, but I didn't want to appropriate it as long as Bill Butel was using it because I (laughs) knew that it was his. But when he retired, I felt it was okay to borrow the be well. And I like be well because it isn't have a good evening. I throw have a good evening in as well. But being well is not about having a good evening. Being well is about be well, you know, mentally well, physically well. Hope you feel well. And I just like the idea of being well. I do like the idea of being lucky, but I love the idea of being well. Here we are in the closing minutes of the year. And for me personally, and I do feel kind of guilty saying this, it was the best year of my professional life in a long, long time. And that includes winning media person of the year for this show at Nova Scotia Music Week. So if we've worked together or you gave me a job or advice or any help at all, thank you for making 2021 feel abnormal in a good way. You can hear all these episodes in full via your various podcast services, which you likely know already. And we appreciate your continued support for this little show. I am, of course, going to close out the year with Hello City, who stopped by twice in 2021 at Halloween and back on Valentine's Day. This clip is from that February show in which they riffed on the five love languages. This one was quality time. In order of vocal appearance, here are Shaheen Sanjari, Henry Gillis, Colin McGuire, and Beth Polson, half of Hello City. See you next year. It's the middle of the night. Midnight. Which I guess is the start of the morning. There, in a room that is dark, yet bright, lay three individuals, side by side. A sleepover between friends. Oh my... Oh, I just had a terrible dream. Did you dream that you were underwater too? Wait, what? Me too. Yeah, I totally had that dream where we were like in a submarine and we were a cool friend gang and then... Oh, guys. Did you wet the... I wet the bed. Cam wet the bed. Cam wet the bed. I'm so, I'm so, I'm so embarrassed. My mom asked if she needed to put down the rubber sheets and you said no. You said no. I know, because who says yes? Who says yes? I'm trying. I'm trying so hard. Okay, just let me go back upstairs. I'll go get get another chest. One sec, one sec. Oh, no, it's fine. I can be really quiet. I can be real quiet. Well, give me your sheets. Give me the I'm not going to give you... You're going to piss them. I already did. I already did. We're sharing a bed, Jeremy. I haven't done it in a couple years, so the odds of you pissing my bed are higher than me pissing my bed. I'm just saying, we could, she's getting fresh sheets. Well, I don't want to give you my sheets. They're my sheets. Don't look at my sheets. I won't. Okay. Oh, uh, don't look at my sheets. No, now I need to look at your sheets. I know when you're being mischievous, you silly mischievous. Fine, they're covered in piss. He did it too. Oh my God, you guys only got one set of sheets. Well, go upstairs and give me another one. I peed. I had that submarine dream.
We all had the submarine dream. We all we had, had the, the submarine, submarine dream. Damn it! I also pissed the bed. I knew it. Okay. Well, okay. This, so this, we, I'm no longer embarrassed. No, me either. But we can't tell anybody at school yes. about this. <gasps> What's all that racket down there? Mommy's trying to get some sleep. Oh, nothing, mom. It's it's nothing, mom. It's oh. nothing. Uh, we're just. Uh, we're playing we're Netflix. Playing, we're ne- playing Netflix. Like nothing, she can't find out. Like sulfur. What's going on? She's the biggest gossip in town. She can't find out. Si- science homework. Science homework. Science homework. At this time of night. Super excited about that science. Oh, my little academic. Just <laughs> testing some <laughs> pH levels. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 We okay. have to be very quiet about this. Okay. Yes, okay. Listen. 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 I think the only way around this is we're gonna have to wash these sheets. Oh, absolutely! There's yeah, there, you can't leave. Have you guys chains. ever done laundry? Never. Not even. Okay, <gasps> once. Camp. Okay. Camp. At camp. Camp laundry. Cause oh, oh, with one of those um the the washboards. Yeah, yeah, okay. the one that my grandpa plays in the band. Right, right. Okay. Um, I don't have a washboard. Um, but one one in this basement that's kind of like a washboard. Um, we could. Oh, well, here's my brother's old uh the keyboard. Yeah, let's Could use the keyboard. keyboard. Yeah, that's yeah. a great idea. Yeah, that, keyboard that works. Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. Okay, so plug it in. Okay. What? Hey, Trash. Oh. Why, why I heard my piano being touched? <laughs> Who's touching the case? Uh, Dan, uh, I, I's, uh, we're just... Uh, oh, sorry, that was me. That was me. Yeah, I, you better not be touching my keyboard. I'm going to fucking noogie you in the morning, otherwise, Trash. Sorry, sorry, sir. I was just practicing because I have a band recital coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got, we got big band, big band. We didn't big know. Big band recital coming up. We'll never up. do it again. We're so sorry. It's fucking midnight. If you wake me up again, I'll make you piss yourselves. Okay. Oh, jeez. No. No. We don't We, we don't, don't do that. that. We yeah. don't do that. We're adult children. children. Right. We're, we're too old we're, for that. I'm okay. going to go to the bathroom, grab some toilet paper, and then go to my room and do nothing, okay? Okay. Okay. Good okay. night. Your brother talks way too loud for your mom to get a good night's sleep. I can't believe I called your your brother sir. That was so silly of me. I just lost all my inhibitions. Such a butt. So he obviously knows when we touch your keyboard, so we can't use your keyboard. And I have a a, a confession. Now that we're not being embarrassed anymore, when your brother yelled down when I was playing the keyboard, I kind of pissed. Did you piss your pajamas? Well, he already did, right? So it's not like it's any worse than it was before. Did you double piss? Yeah, double piss. That we have. Can I? Can I? Can I say something? Did you also double piss? Yeah, but not when the brother talked, when the mom talked. Mom talked, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is about her. Guys, I have a confession to make. I think I know where this is going. When we woke up, Uh that wasn't the first time I woke up. What? I woke up 30 minutes earlier. I also fell back asleep in my own piss and then pissed again. It's just so warm. I understand. There's nothing like a piss blanket. That means that you're pissant zero. Okay, guys. So we really just need to find out. That was great. Uh, we need to find out. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very proud of it. Another item to clean these sheets with. We can't have piss sheets. Well, what? 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 Okay, wait. I saw an old timey movie once. All right. Uh-huh. I think it was in Holland. No, I wasn't in Holland. But the movie was set in Holland. Where's that? Okay. Right. Great question. Um, so it was like a east. giant big tub. Um, and then it was all these people, and they threw all their clothes in it, and then they just stepped on it. Um, so I'm thinking, what if I blow up my wading pool, we throw some water in it, we throw my sheets in it, and then we just stomp around in it, but quietly Kind of like, like the grape lady? Have you guys seen grape yeah. lady? I am genuinely concerned about okay, her I'm gonna house. Okay, go we... I'm going to go get my pool. Okay, 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 I, okay. I think grape ladies, sidebar, grape lady's doing okay, though. She's not like... So, Long-term injured, Just right? the way that that flip happened, I was very nervous about her coccyx. <sighs> okay, I gotta, I gotta blow this up. Chris? <laughs> this is your father. Oh, no, it's happening. Oh. In case you couldn't tell. It's happening right now. What, what's up, Dad? What's wrong? What's all that blowing down there? You touching my tires? Uh, no, you don't have to come down. You don't have to come downstairs. Not at all. Who touched the thermostat? What? Did you touch my thermostat? No, the thermostat, it's set at 19.5. No, we didn't touch the thermostat, Dad. You're touching the tires. you touching my tires? I'm not touching the tires, Dad. You're not touching my tires. We're, no. having a, we're having a pool party. But uh, we're just pretending that the pool is here. And we're all, midnight. We're all standing we're in pretending. the pool. Yeah, we're pretending. Playing pretend, eh? With your friends? Yeah. Oh, better not see any mischief. No, no mischief. No just mischief. pretend. All right. Don't touch my tires. Okay, night, Dad. 
Okay, the pool's blown up, okay? okay. I have some... incredible lung capacity. I'm very proud. I have some bad news about... <laughs> well, I think we all have some bad news. I also have some bad news. The um... pressure of blowing up this pool. <laughs> I pissed myself again. I, um... I actually touched the tires. <laughs> you know, whatever happens, however we get out of this insane conundrum, whether it be through confession or through mischief, there's something I got to say about it. Never again will I feel sad when I piss my pants. Oh I'll God. always think about you too I'm and the awesome. time that we pissed our pants three times in one night in the basement. You pissed yourself a third time too? Yeah, just for fun. <laughs> I'm so glad that we're friends. Should we all seal it with a friendly kiss? I'm okay. leaning in if you're leaning in. I'm already peeing. Three way kiss. <laughs> the tideline is engineered by Palmer Jamison at the Golden Palm and produced by the Halifax Examiner.